Hello again, and welcome to episode seven of Craven Craven, the podcast devoted to the films of Wes Craven. I am one of your co-hosts, Patrick Bromley, joined, as always, by my horror BFF, Heather Wixon. Hi, Heather. Hello. I'm really excited for today. I'm excited for today, too, because we are finally at what I consider to be one of Wes Craven's magnum opuses magnum opi what would be the plural Opies? of opus <laughs> opi opi <laughs> uh, a nightmare on elm street from 1984 the birth of freddy krueger on screen i'm very excited to talk about this movie yes and the birth of our friendship you're exactly right i don't <laughs> think we've told have we told that story on the podcast not on this podcast no. okay i think it's been like probably like six or so years since we've talked about that oh well this so is exciting like it's okay yeah yes. we will definitely get into uh the connection that this movie has for our friendship here we are still talking like 30 years later indeed it's it's hard to believe i know it's one of those things like i look at this movie and because i rewatched it last week and i know you recently rewatched it too and it's so interesting to me because i still cannot believe that this movie is like oh almost 40 years old yeah like yeah. it doesn't feel that way at all to me, which seems weird because it very it very much is feels eighties, but yet I it just I, I still haven't made that connection that things in the eighties now are forty years old. <laughs> so maybe that's like a little bit of my own uh denial working working in my head. But yeah, I I realized I was like, Oh my goodness, we are just a few years away from the fortieth anniversary of this movie, which is kind of mind blowing. Three short years and Freddy Krueger turns forty. Um, let's quickly give the uh, plot summary for A Nightmare on Elm Street uh, from IMDb for any of you who still haven't seen A Nightmare on Elm Street. The monstrous spirit of a slain child murderer seeks revenge by invading the dreams of teenagers whose parents were responsible for his untimely death. That is the shortest of the IMDb plot summaries. There are many written by users. I went with the shortest one because I figure most people have seen A Nightmare on Elm Street by this point, or at least have seen one of the sequels. I would think so. I, I feel like, I mean, if you're listening to this, chances are there's there's no way you haven't seen A Nightmare on Elm Street. <laughs> like, I mean, you've had 37 years almost to like catch up to it, so... On the off chance that you haven't seen Nightmare on Elm Street, I guess pause this, go watch it, and then come back because I don't think we can really discuss it without spoilers. It's an interesting choice to listen to an all Wes Craven podcast without having seen a Nightmare on Elm Street. Could you imagine? I want to meet that person though. <laughs> like I would. They may love, exist. I would really, I, you know, honestly, like I would really love to meet somebody who has yet to experience a Nightmare on Elm Street and is doing so right now. Yeah. That to me would be really fascinating because I don't want to like because I, I, I hate when people shame people for not seeing things. But, you know, we all sort of have our, our you know, cu cultural blind spots. And, you know, I mean, it took me until like my mid 30s to see the Indiana Jones movies. I know, I know. Um, so I would never like make fun of somebody for not have seen have seen have seen Nightmare on Elm Street. But like at the same time, really? <laughs> like, you're a horror fan. <laughs> I, that's where almost where I would start because it to me like if you're if you're somebody who wants to immerse yourself at this day and age in like classic horror and maybe the black and white movies of the 30s and the 40s are a little daunting for you like Nightmare on Elm Street to me is like a really good place to start 
like I think your starter pack would be, and this is so basic, but it's true. Like it would be like Nightmare on Elm Street, Halloween, Texas Chainsaw, and then you go and you explore from there. I think those are like the three building blocks for me. This was kind of the movie that started me with horror movies because um, I think the first real horror movie I ever saw was Creepshow because it was introduced to me by my dad. He rented, we didn't even own a VCR. He rented a VCR so that he could show me Creepshow. Um, But A Nightmare on Elm Street was the first horror movie that I sort of discovered on my own and became very aware of, independent of my parents. I remember it being on cable and really wanting to see it. And I had a friend who was allowed to see rated R movies and he had seen it. And so he would sit at the cafeteria table and tell me like recount the entire plot to me. And I would just sit there wrapped. And uh, I remember being very afraid of the idea of having to see Glenn's death because he described to me this guy gets sucked into the bed and then all this blood comes shooting out and that idea was so terrifying to me that I was scared to see the movie it was one of the only horror movies I can ever remember being afraid to see but of course I made an appointment to sleep over at his house as soon as possible so that uh, because he didn't have these restrictions that I had at home so that we could watch A Nightmare on Elm Street in secret from my parents. Obviously, his parents knew we were watching it because he had recorded it off of cable. And once I saw that sequence, I was no longer afraid of it. But I remember sitting there the whole time, and I was probably, I don't know, eight years old, um, waiting for that scene and very, very anxious about when it was going to come up. Uh, And it's a good ways into the movie, so I was kind of on edge for a long portion of the movie and then kind of relieved once that sequence had passed. But this was really the first horror movie that I, you know, the first R rated horror movie that I discovered on my own. I had a love of universal monsters. I didn't even see the movies growing up. I just read books about them um, as a kid. But this one is really the one that I would credit with getting me as into horror as I am today. Yeah. It's interesting for me. So I remember, cause I grew up pretty much with, like carte blanche in terms of the horror movies I was allowed to watch, um, except for a few. And I remember when uh, A Nightmare on Elm Street came to video and our parents, uh, my best friend and I, like our parents always hung out and stuff like that. And so they wanted to watch it first just to make sure that we could take it because by the, we were like, I was seven when this movie came to VHS, she was eight. And so they wanted to make sure like, okay, we're cool. But I mean, at this point I'd already seen the thing which mm. just totally scarred me for life. Um, it made me terrified of dogs for a long time. <laughs> no joke. Besides the fact that I'd actually gotten attacked by a dog a few times. Um, so it was one of those, I remember they were like, okay, we're going to watch this movie first. You guys have to go play in, in, in Jenna's bedroom and you know we'll let you know when we're done. And we're like, okay. But we're in the room and we're like, holy crap, this horror movie is playing like in the next room. So I remember... Um, we, we left her bedroom and we were actually crawling on the floor and Jenna's parents had the, the, the living room totally dark. And the way that her living room was, was worked like, was like sort of staged. It was like the couch was in the middle of the room and it was kind of in line with the hallway door. So we actually crawled behind the couch and we're watching it silently from behind the couch. And it got to the scene um, where Nancy's running up the stairs and she gets stuck yeah. and Freddie's coming through the door. And 
it was the point where the, 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 the fake face of Tina kind of falls off of Freddie's face. And basically Jenna like loudly said, holy shit. And our parents like, just were like, where did you guys come from? And we got in trouble that night. So we didn't get to actually watch it that night. And I remember it was like a few months later, um, I was over at my babysitter's house and a friend of mine had given me a VHS tape that had a nightmare on Elm street and children of the corn on it. And Judy was my babysitter and she was, uh, she was kind of like hands off cause she was always doing stuff. And, uh, so basically I was like, Oh, I really want to watch this. And she's like, well, you can watch it, but you can't be scared. And she's like, I have to check with, she used to call her my mama. She's like, I have to check with your mama and make sure it's okay. Cause my mom was working over the weekend and my mom's like, sure, fine, whatever. Just let her watch the dumb movie. <laughs> and so I remember staying the night at Judy's that night and I was terrified. Um, because I, it was just, I watched it by myself cause actually my friend ended up like this girl, Erin ended up having to go home so I was like, okay, well, I'll bring your tape back or whatever. And I remember having to get up in the middle of the night to pee. And it was like going down the hallway to the bathroom was the most terrifying thing because of the scene of Freddie coming through the walls. So I thought to myself, if I could run down the middle of the hallway with my eyes closed and I was away from the walls, there was no way Freddie could touch me. <laughs> And I just remember, like, I, I, like, folded my arms in and just ran really quickly <laughs> with my eyes, like, 90% closed and ran into the bathroom, ran right out and ran right back to the bed in the the, the fold-out couch in the, in the living room. And that was the first night. And it was weird because, like, I was terrified of that movie um, for a lot of reasons. But I also – there was just something about it where I was, like, I was so hooked. And then it was, like, the, the thing of, like, trying to get my friends to watch it who were all – kind of usually scared by this stuff so yeah. eventually like you know i somebody had bought it and so we're like okay and then it was like it started to make the rounds with everybody and then freddie just kind of became this thing and it's weird like when you think about like the origin of this character becoming a pop cultural icon but not in the same way like jason did like it was a totally different experience um to the point where like i had a freddie krueger poster on my wall it kind of scared me but I kind of loved it at the same time. Um, so, but yeah, it was weird. Cause like I had Freddie across the bed for me and above my bed, which this hasn't aged well, but it was Hulk Hogan. Yeah. <laughs> so I was. I love that you feel worse about having Hulk Hogan than you do the child murdering Freddy Krueger. Uh, you know, right. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, it's God bless listen, Island. Freddy Krueger did a lot of shitty things. Okay. But he was never a racist. No Hulk Hogan. Yeah. He was never Hulk Hogan. <laughs> Um, so yeah, it's, it's interesting, but yeah, I just remember like, and then I had friends who like wouldn't come over to play at my house because of my Freddy Krueger poster. Oh, wow. Yeah. Cause they were afraid of it. So yeah. So I was weird. Like I almost like leaned into that fear because to me it was like the only way I was going to conquer it. Kind of like Nancy does mm, in the movie. Look at you. Look at me. I was learning life lessons at like age eight to 10 and I didn't even know it. <laughs> Well, Freddy Krueger is really the only horror icon I can think of, of the 80s at least, that was marketed directly to children. Now, there are horror icons marketed to children, and there's action figures that look like Scooby-Doo characters, and there's stuffed animals and stuff like that, but not at the height of their popularity. This is years after the fact. Freddy Krueger, at the height of his popularity, right? We're talking around Elm Street 4, 
was being marketed directly to children with stuffed animals and 900 numbers and toys. And, um, and as you said, when you think about his backstory and who that character actually is and what he represents, it's insane to think that he was such a pop culture icon. It's, I guess parents just didn't give a shit as much in the eighties as maybe they do now. Cause I just feel like now if this were happening, the social media outrage would just be unbearable. Like, I guess people were just a little less tense about these things. Like, Hey, my kid wants a doll of a child murderer. That sounds fine. <laughs> Look at that cool sweater. <laughs> He's got the glove oh, and the burned face. Yeah. yeah and, you can, and you can remove the hat. That's fine. <laughs> um, by the way, I totally called the Freddy Krueger 900 number when I was a kid. Did you? I didn't. We were, we were forbidden from calling 900 numbers. I was I was forbidden as well, but I did it anyway. I only did it once. Because you're a I, rebel. I am, but I got in trouble for it. Well, sure. Um, so yeah, I actually wasn't allowed to talk on the phone for like two weeks after that. I got my phone privileges taken away. Um, but yeah, I had I had to. Like, how do I not call that? Do you do remember what the recording was like? I mean, was it just it him doing one liners or what? It was. It was just a bunch of one liners. Did he give you the weather, um, had, but like, like in Freddie sound- voice? It was total Freddy voice, and it was like I can remember like creepy sounds um, in the background where it was almost kind of like the music, but it wasn't exactly the music from from the movies. Um, but it was mostly like one liners. Um, but yeah, I remember that. I also I also called the DJs as you said from Fresh Prince line too. Wow, that I also got in a lot of trouble for because that was actually more expensive because I think that was three ninety nine a minute. And this is in like nineteen eighty nine dollars, right? Yeah, yeah, so that's like. You know, that's that's like a ten dollar phone call these days or something. Yeah. So but yeah, I, I, I miss the days of like having specialized phone lines. I wish they would do that more to like market movies today, because I actually think it'd be kind of fun. <laughs> I think we once got to call Santa. Oh, I remember the Santa one too. He yeah. was cheap though. He was only like forty nine cents a minute. Yeah, maybe that's why we were allowed to call. Uh but I definitely was never allowed to call Freddie. Oh, boy. Yeah, because I remember they would also market it during Freddy's Nightmares, which, I mean, like, how do I... I I think I actually snuck into the dining room late at night because that's where our phone was in our house. And I think I remember, like, making the call (laughs) under the guise of night, thinking I was never going to get caught and my mom would never read the phone bill, right? I I definitely used to try to stay awake for Freddy's Nightmares because it would come on at, like, midnight on Saturday nights on NBC. And I would try to stay awake for Freddy's Nightmare. Same way I would like try to stay awake for Saturday night's main event and would often fall asleep and would wake up Sunday morning just crushed that I had missed it because there was no DVR. There was no VCR. It was just like it was on and you missed it. So now there's no going back to see it. Uh, That happened to me many times. (laughs) Oh, my God. The days of Saturday night's main events. Taking me back. We actually watched all it. We went back and rewatched all of them. Um, and I think that's the thing that I kind of miss about like the people don't under- don't get don't get a chance to experience the way di- we did like as kids is like this whole idea of like getting to stay up late for something really cool and different. Yeah. Because everything is like streaming now, so you just kind of get it. There's right. you know, other than like Disney releasing like their episodes at like midnight for you know us here on the, the West Coast or whatever. I think they do at midnight for all t- time zones. But like just that idea of like. Ooh, tonight there's going to be wrestling on and like you could stay up and watch it. 
Um, I mean, I was kind of a, a night owl kid anyway, so I was always like kind of up watching SNL anyway. But like just the idea that something late at night, usually when kids are supposed to be asleep, but it was catered directly to my interests, um, was always something that like I really loved. And I kind of I miss that feeling. I miss that excitement of like, ooh, I'm gonna stay up late and maybe I'll make you know I'll, I'll pull out some popcorn hmm. and I'm gonna watch Freddy's Nightmares. Um, which I need to redo. I have to re- go back and rewatch season two because I finished season one and did that big piece for it. I remember that. I want to go back and do season two. I'm, you know, I I know I'm in for a world of pain, but I'm <laughs> I, I'm a completist. Even when they're bad, I enjoy them. Oh yeah, dude. The I still when I was a kid, the one episode of Freddy's Nightmares that always freaked me out. Um, was the one that had Lori Petty who gets decapitated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The when track she's star. Running. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think Mick Garris directed that episode. Uh, you may if I'm be not right. Mistaken. Yeah, yeah, but I always that always stuck with me, and I still remember like the first time I saw Point Break, and I was like, "That's the girl from Freddy's <laughs> Nightmares." Like that well, was my frame of reference. <laughs> and then one of the scariest parts is in the second half where she's sitting at like the breakfast table, like the you know the ghost of this dead girl, but they didn't have Lori Petty, so yeah. they just used a different actress <laughs> to stand in for Lori Petty. They only had Lori Petty for the first half. It was there were some decisions made on that series, that's for sure. Yeah, well, they were <laughs> working very quickly and without much money. So, what are you, what are you gonna do? What are you gonna do? So <laughs> I um I don't know where you stand on this because I I know you are such a fan of another franchise that Wes Craven launched about a decade later. For me, A Nightmare on Elm Street is not only his best movie, um, but this is my favorite horror movie of all time. Of all the horror movies I've ever seen, this one is my favorite. I don't know where you stand in terms of this movie in Wes's filmography, because you are a huge fan of a couple of other ones I know of. Yeah, it's tough for me. I mean, I I go regularly back and forth with night, like original Nightmare and New Nightmare. Um, because both of those movies changed, like changed me in ways that I could have never expected. And if you would have told me like a seventh movie in a series would be such a game changer, if I could use a little popular vernacular, uh, I would have never believed it. But I, I honestly, for me, like I put new nightmare up there with the original nightmare. Um, I do think in terms of, if I'm looking at Wes Craven's filmography as a whole, I would definitely, I think I, God, I don't even know how I would do that. But I, I, I would definitely put the original Nightmare probably as, as the number one because I don't know that I would have, one, fallen in love with Wes as a director as much had it not been for Nightmare. And two, I don't know that I would have become as obsessed with horror if it wasn't because of Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, so it's tough because the Scream movies to me are that franchise I love you know, with every ounce of my being. And also it changed basically the trajectory of horror as well. Yeah. Um, but then every time I watch new nightmare, like I'm just, I I'm so constantly blown away by how brilliant that movie is and how I get so frustrated, how like unheralded it was at the time. And I love that people are still catching up to it, but there are still people who are sort of detractors of new nightmare, um, which kind of bums me out a little bit. 
um, because there's just, I mean, that you you don't have Scream without New Nightmare. Absolutely not. That yeah, that movie walked so Scream could run. That's that's true. So, but I I unabashedly love everything about the Scream movies, like with every fiber of my being, including a certain fourth entry that's going to be uh, celebrating <laughs> its tenth anniversary finally soon. Yes, it is, and we will get to it eventually. It's crazy to think that that will be the last show we do, right? It will be. I know. Yeah. I wish we could have worked it out to where it coincided with the 10th anniversary because we had that discussion, I think, back in 2013 of me saying it's, you know, that once the 10th anniversary comes along, you watch like everybody's be like, yeah. oh, my God, Scream 4 is amazing. So it's kind of a bummer that we have to kind of do it after the fact. Yeah. Um, but I look forward to being proven right in a few weeks. <laughs> and Scream 5 doesn't come out till 2022, correct? Yes, I think it's January. Okay. So just... I'm waiting. I'm waiting patiently. I'm waiting patiently. <laughs> uh, New Nightmare was, I'm sure I'll repeat this when we get to that episode, um, A, the first Nightmare on Elm Street movie I ever saw theatrically, because it was the first one I was old enough to go see by myself. And B, was the first, it was the second Laserdisc I ever owned and the first commentary track I ever listened to. I specifically bought it to listen to Wes Craven's commentary track, which is pretty dry. Um, it wasn't a great commentary, but I was like, I needed to hear Wes Craven talk about that movie because I was so fascinated by that movie. Uh, and now I've since gone back and seen repertory screenings of several Nightmare on Elm Street movies. Um, I've seen the first one a handful of times on the big screen. I saw Dream Warriors on the big screen. I think I saw two once. I've never seen four, five, or six theatrically. Oh, yeah. Three was my first. And I remember <coughs> we were on vacation in West Virginia. And they were showing it at the drive-in. I don't remember what the other movie was. I'm totally blanking on it. This is very important. <sighs> It's not important at all. That's the problem. Just make it so, up. Um, ghoulies. I don't know. Uh, but anyway, I just remember. <laughs> the timing is we right, were, I believe. <laughs> we were staying over at my Aunt Doris's and her kids were like teenager age. And I remember we were, we went to the roller rink the first night and her daughter was like, oh, they're showing Nightmare on Elm Street 3 at the drive-in because it had come out like in the winter, but it was making its way to the drive in there in, in West Virginia. And I was like, Oh my gosh, mom, can we go? And I remember my, my aunt Doris had a big pickup truck and it was cold cause it was, it was springtime in West Virginia. So it was like warm during the day. It's kind of really chilly at night. We had like tons of blankets. And I remember sitting there and when Nancy, a spoiler for anybody who hasn't seen nightmare three, I mean, obviously, Again, maybe catch up a little bit. Um, but like I remember sitting there and when Nancy gets killed, Boo. I lost my shit. Like in an embarrassing way. Like I was in like I was sobbing. Like some kid who just like got like because like my mom, you know, again, I don't condone it, but like my mom used a belt, you know, when I was acting up or whatever. Like I like I was acting like I just got my ass whooped. And like, I was crying. So, and like, here I'm with like my teenage cousins who are just like, okay, why did we bring the child with us? <laughs> and I, my mom was like, if you don't calm down, we have to leave. And that was like, that was my like emotional, like, I think it was like the first real like cinematic heartbreak that I felt as a kid because I'd cried during movies, but to lose Nancy, 
I lost it. I was just like, I was done. And then four, four and five, we actually saw at the, tw- uh, the twin drive-in in Wheeling. Nice. Um, and then I did, because five was so weird to me as a kid, <laughs> I skipped six. I was, I was just kind of like at the age where I was like, my mom really wasn't into taking me to them anymore. She was kind of going through her churchy phase at that point. And I didn't really love five as a kid. So I kind of was checked out a little bit. And so I didn't see six until I was like in high school. And then I remember I rented that like freshman year and then new nightmare came out like between my sophomore and junior year, I believe. Um, and I ended up watching that by myself at home and scared the shit out of myself because we had a really big rainstorm that night and the power actually went out at a certain point and then came back and I was in the house because my mom worked midnights uh, on the weekends at the same at the same white hen that I did so on Friday and Saturday nights I was home by myself overnight and I remember I scared the shit out of myself (laughs) I don't think I actually went to sleep before I had to be at work at 7 a.m yikes I just stayed up I was like but you know back in high school you could do that kind of stuff right right (laughs) so but yeah I just it's I'm really lucky that in most instances like two we rented um because at the point we had seen it two had just I think hit theaters uh, cause they moved that movie pretty fast based on the success of the first one. Yeah. It was out the um, next so, year, right? Yeah, yeah. Like I think it was less than 12 months I yeah. think, since debut, you know, so that was a pretty fast turnaround. So one and two we had rented, but like three was my first one, um, which was pretty amazing when you think about it. And, but again, I was just, I was a wreck. <laughs> I still get really upset at that scene. The death of Nancy in three is one of the reasons why I will never prefer it to one. And I know there are a lot of people who prefer dream warriors. That's their nightmare on Elm street of choice. And I get it. It's, it's what the series became at its best. Um, Yeah. But I'm less interested in what the series became than I am in how it started out. So I will always prefer the first one. I get it. I get it. I think, you know, and it's, it's funny too, because when I look at how I rank the movies, you know, I go back and forth between nightmare and new nightmare being like my favorite, but three comes in right after it. And I think again, it's because of that sort of emotional betrayal. (laughs) And then four, I love just because it's like, it's almost like an, uh, a constant sort of video music, video montage feel to it. Um, and also the fact that Lisa Wilcox rules in that movie. Um, so, you know, I always get mad when people kind of dismiss four. A lot of times I'm like, boy, you just, I, I, you have to understand the context of how the time that that movie was released. Like that movie is like the perfect time capsule for the for the time it was released. So anyway, but yeah, I, uh, I, I go back and forth between Nightmare and New Nightmare a lot in terms of being my favorite of nightmares. But I will say in my living room, I have posters for both up. So I, you know, you don't have to choose. I didn't have to choose. <laughs> that's, that's excellent. Um, what, so let's talk about the movie a little bit. Um, besides having what is for me, the greatest final girl in horror movie history. And what is for me, the greatest horror antagonist slash you know icon in horror movie history and i and i say that as somebody who like probably would rather watch a friday the 13th movie 
sequel than a Nightmare on Elm Street sequel. Those are my comfort food, more so than Nightmare on Elm Street, although I'll watch a Nightmare on Elm Street sequel any day of the week. Like, if one's on, forget it, I'll watch it. But Friday the 13th is more my comfort blanket. Um, but I think... Freddy... I think we do that, too. Yeah. We do that, too, in our house, but I think the difference is, is like, I think for me, like, Friday the 13th, I can put on, and I'm immediately, like, Okay, I feel centered, but I can do other things while I'm watching it. Sure. Nightmare, no matter what I'm doing, I'm immediately sucked into it. Yeah. And it's really hard for me to sort of pull my attention away, regardless of which one it is, because it is such a visual universe. Yeah. That's that's built throughout these movies. Yeah. Um, where you you kind of it it's it demands your attention. Where Friday, it's sort of you can almost be a passive viewer. In definitely. a way, because, yeah, you know, well, because like, you know, Nightmare, it plays with sort of the blending of reality and fantasy. And you, you have to like you have to kind of pay attention as to when and when in those stories, like it switches, because if you don't like you're going to you're going to, you know, lose your footing in terms of where you are in the story where, you know, Friday, it's like Jason's walking around the woods, killing people. OK, cool. Um, but we watch the Fridays a lot, especially on Friday nights uh, when we're scrabbling. That's one of our favorite things. And if it's raining, we always throw on Friday, too. Oh, very nice. Yes, it's a good Friday. It's our, our our favorite rainy day uh, double feature is Clue and Friday Two. I like it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we, we we do it right over here. <laughs> um, so even though the Friday series is more like my horror white noise, as you aptly described it, um, I think Freddy Krueger is the single greatest like slasher horror icon ever created um so it's got that going for it it's got nancy thompson being for me the best final girl i know there are people who prefer laurie strode i know there are people who prefer jenny from friday too um for me it's nancy thompson all the way what else is it about it that you think makes this movie so special um i think for me on a personal level um there's a lot of reasons why i i, I love uh, the nightmare series and particularly one. Um, and I love Nancy. Uh, Nancy to me is, is my final girl. Yes. Um, Lori and Sydney come up pretty oh, close. Oh, Sydney. Yeah. I forgot Sydney. And everybody bags on Sydney, but like, shut up. Who bags on Sydney? Um, That's crazy talk. Oh my God. All the time on Twitter. I see it all this the time. This is why and I don't like, really oh. go on Twitter. <laughs> I, you're you're doing it right because yeah. like they're like oh she's so emotional and she makes stupid decisions. I was like welcome to being a teenager, like come on and like the things that the, the, that girls had to go through and like you're gonna you're gonna bag on her for that like oh I don't know they they, they come after my nev and I get really mad about it. Um, but yeah, for me Nancy was like the final girl, um, and I I think a lot of the reasons is just because I saw a lot of myself in her um, because. It's played by an actress uh, who shares my first name. That's right. So that imme- immediately I was like, an actress named Heather. Um, Heather's yes, got to okay. stick together. We do. We do. Um, and so that to me immediately I was like, oh my gosh, I love her. And then like the fact that she had like mousy brown hair. So she wasn't like your typical, you know, blonde girl from horror, 80s horror. Like there was just something different and natural about her. And I'm not taking away from any actresses who have blonde hair and horror, <laughs> but like they're really like you, you hear the, 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 the idea of the girl next door. Like that's a concept that we've, you know, that's, 
been put out there for, for, you know, decades now. To me, Nancy really did feel like the girl next door um, because she was really relatable. She was very empathetic. She was smart, you know, and there was just something about her that, like, she's like the kind of character you feel like you could go and have a conversation with, regardless of who you are. If that makes sense. Um, but as a kid, you know, also when I was growing up, like growing up in a house with a single mom, like there's a lot of different horror movies that really, I think I latched onto because it was kind of seeing my own experiences as the child of a single parent and sort of the isolation that you feel in that instance, especially when you're an only child, Mm -hmm. um, that really was, became sort of like my outlets. Um, so that's why I think I loved movies like A Nightmare on Elm Street or Child's Play or Fright Night because I saw myself in those characters because I know how it felt to sort of have to be on your own and have to fend for yourself a lot of the times. And Nancy especially um, because, you know, the things that she's dealing with, like beyond the fact that they're so fantastical in their nature, but she has a dad who's just basically – you can tell there's always sort of been an emotional wedge between them, which we also see reflected in part. But then she has a mom who's an alcoholic who just, who hasn't been able to function as a proper parent to her. Um, And even when she tries, like she still fails. And, you know, not that my mom was an alcoholic or anything like that, but like she was always working, you know, and I was always being like shipped off to different babysitters and things like that. And I think, you know, in a lot of ways, I, I almost see the relationship between Nancy and Donald, something that sort of reminds me of how, like, I'm with my mom. Like, I know the love is there, but we've always been, there's always been sort of this distance sure. for whatever circumstances. So for me, Nancy was like, it was kind of like the first time I felt like I saw myself in a movie, um, which was kind of cool. And the fact that she turns into such a badass and she's so proactive, um, you know, I think just was like really inspiring to me, you know, as a kid kind of dealing with a lot of different things on my own, um, you know, that just sort of made it easier for me to kind of like live life because I knew if Nancy could do it, well, I could do it too. (laughs) What do you make of the movies, uh, Nancy's and by extension, the films sort of fear slash dread of, Nancy's burgeoning sexuality. I don't even really think that's it because I don't even think that it's burgeoning. Like, because I get the sense that her and Glenn have done some stuff because there's even like the moment when they're at Tina's and Rod shows up to surprise them. Right. Mm -hmm. And Tina and Rod go in there and like, they go and have, you know, go have their crazy wild, you know, Tarzan sex or whatever it is. (laughs) It's something. Um, it's 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 a scene. I mean, it's, it's it's less laughable than like the Halloween scene with PJ Souls, which is like 22 seconds of like <laughs> grunting and writhing, and then you're like, all right, we're good. Um, like, the 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 back. Judith Myers is even worse. Oh yeah, where he's like, Bing Bang Boom, I'm right, I'm out. <laughs> if yeah. somebody clocked it once, I forget what the exact time is, but it's very short. It's, yeah, especially to go up the stairs and get right. in the room, take your <laughs> right. clothes off, and then put your clothes back on to leave. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty amazing. Um, but yeah, I think for me, like, I, I get the sense because, like, Glenn kind of moves in, like, they're going to start fooling around a little bit, and she's like, not now. 
So I, I wouldn't even, I, I can't even say for sure that Nancy is virginal. Um, because there's, and they, there's like a little bit of innuendo, especially like the scene when he like climbs up her rose trellis and he sees sitting in the bed and she's like, you know, I want to do something. And she turns the lights off and she's like, and it's not what you think. <laughs> so I almost, I almost get the hint that there's, there's been some things that's happened between them. Um, well, it reminds me I of don't... like Billy and Sydney in the original scream where it's like, they have kind of a PG 13 sex life. Yes. Um, you know, but Freddy Krueger represents something much more sinister, right? Something much more adult that Nancy is, I don't want to say not ready for, not interested in, not. Well, I think, I think a lot, in a lot of ways, I mean, it comes down to two things. It's, it's the loss of innocence. Mm -hmm. Um, And up until this point, like, these kids have sort of lived in this blissful existence, unaware of who this man was in reality and in the past, because they're all, they have no idea who Freddy Krueger is. Um, so somehow for so long, they've been sheltered enough to where their parents have been able to keep this man from them. Um, which again, sort of, you'd have to wonder how would you work that today in the, in, you know, living in the world that we live in where every piece of information is available to us. Um, so one, they've been sheltered from the identity of this man and the things that he's done. But then also, you know, for me, it's, it's also, you know, Nancy coming into her own in terms of being able to deal with the sins of the, of, of the parents. Cause that's another thing. Um, you know, sort of you, the, the sins of, of your, your fathers or whatever it is, um, you know, that will be reaped upon the children. Yeah. So we get that in here too. But I think in another way, it's, it's also, you know, Nancy coming to her own, not just specifically as a woman, but I think as an adult, um, and as an adult who is capable and able to deal with, you know, this, this entity that can come at her, you know, at any point. And it's interesting, like, the only time it ever really feels sexual is the I'm your boy, Nancy, with the phone and the tongue. I would argue the bathtub also. Oh, yeah, that's right. You're right. You're right. Okay. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I guess there is a case to be made about, you know, Freddie's being representative of, you know, the the blossoming of womanhood and sort of the, the, the threat of, you know, of him taking that away from her. Um, but I think there's a lot of different elements, I think, that really kind of play into what Nancy represents in terms of this world. So, but yeah, I totally forgot the bathtub scene. Yeah. I mean, you know, <laughs> well, and that's, yeah, <laughs> that's, your thighs, you know. <laughs> that's where he's making the thesis into text, you know, and he's a, he, his films have such a weird relationship with sex when you think about um how ugly the sex is and something like you can't even call it sex obviously in the hills have eyes or in last house on the left it's just straight out rape and when we go all the way back to something like the fireworks woman we're talking about sex that is incestuous so i just think his films to this point have had such an uneasy relationship to sex and so to see it filtered through the dynamic between Nancy and Freddy Krueger, I think is, is fascinating. And to see her sort of holding off the advances of Glenn 
while at the same time this sinister boogeyman is making sexual advances at her um you know i don't think that's an accident yeah i always wonder if it was maybe like craven's own sort of fears about like his ability to protect his kids because you know he i know he was dealing with like you know mirror if i'm remembering correctly i don't remember if it was mentioned sleep again or if it was something that I read in like an interview but I know he was kind of dealing with some marriage issues where I think he had just gotten into like his second marriage and you know there's there's like the guilt that comes with parents of being able to protect your kids and stuff because I think a lot of this movie explores sort of the the downfall of the traditional American family in a lot of ways like you like most it, of his films yeah at least to this it, point yeah, and you see it demonstrated not only with Nancy, but also with Tina as well. Yeah. Um, because, you know, at the beginning, like, you know, her mom has that whatever guy <laughs> pop into the room that, you know, who is her boyfriend who takes her to Vegas, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and, you know, again, it's, you know, Tina's parent and mom, like her, the, the person who's supposed to guard her and keep her safe, like basically takes off for a weekend or whatever it is. Um and because she does that, Tina dies. Right. And, and the thing is, it's like not that she could have kept Tina safe, but, you know, there's, there's, to me, it feels like there's a lot of sort of parental guilt that's sort of rippling through this movie as well in terms of, you know, what are we doing to children? Like, you know, through sort of the dissolution of the, the, Ameri the, the family units and sort of making, you know, forcing kids to have to grow up a lot earlier because of that. Um, it's funny. I'm actually writing a paper about that right now for one of my classes. Oh, cool. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to put some of this knowledge to, to good use for, yeah. for a change. Um, but you know, what's interesting to me too, is because I just recently finally watched shock, uh, with Daria Nicolodi and it's so interesting to me because, um, I still think that the opening with Tina and her nightmare is like one of the most horrifying things. Like just, it's, it's so unsettling. Um, and a lot of it really works really well because of the sound design that it's just, it's super creepy still. Um, but what's interesting is when she wakes up and she has like the cuts in her nightgown, I immediately, when I rewatched nightmare now, it totally reminded me of one of the nightmare sequences from shock, which that, that exact same thing happens to Daria Nicolodi hmm. where she wakes up in a white nightgown and she has these slits on, on like sort of the, 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 the stomach area of her nightgown. And I always like now I'm kind of wondering, like, was Wes because that is a movie that also sort of toys with these nightmares. Right. Um, as well. And I'm just curious. I, I, I wish Wes was here because I'd love to ask him, like, you know, was that an inspiration at all for sort of that opening with Tina? Um, because that nightmare sequence in shock is really effective as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's, we didn't really even talk about the idea of the nightmares in the film and how like spectacularly they are staged. And that's one of the reasons why this is my favorite horror movie is because like, this is the kind of shit that I go, go to, or I go for in horror movies, this, the kind of creativity that's on display in this movie, because I will concede the point that a nightmare on Elm street, uh, has a lot of rough edges. Um, you know, it was made for not a ton of money. It was made for less than $2 million. Um, not all of the performances I would argue are of equal quality. Um, I'm not, I don't love Ronnie Blakely in this movie. She's, she, I feel like, 
I feel like she's playing in a different movie at times. Okay. I, don't, I, I think it, it, I have less of a problem with it now than maybe I would have a few years ago, but I almost feel like she's, she's still sort of caught in like a Robert like Altman kind of movie, <laughs> <laughs> which I know she was used to because that was sort of like her calling card for a long time yeah. uh, was her performance in Nashville. Yeah. And um, so I'm, I'm, I'm just wondering if she just felt like she was in a t- different movie than everybody else because she's a little bit over dramatic at times. Yeah, it's again, I, I wouldn't even say it's a bad performance. I just I don't think she's up to necessarily the quality of a lot of the other performances, which I think are very, very good. Um, so I recognize that it is a movie of rough, rough edges, something like The Shining or even John Carpenter's original Halloween are more technically perfect films, but they don't have the sense of invention that a Nightmare on Elm Street has, both in its uh, premise and in its visuals. And the idea behind the movie is, again, I I don't want to be too hyperbolic, but this is my favorite horror movie, so I'm going to be fucking hyperbolic. Like, I think it's like the greatest premise for a horror movie ever conceived, this idea that there's a boogeyman who kills you in your dreams. Because The Exorcist doesn't scare me. I wasn't brought up religious. Friday the 13th doesn't scare me. I just won't go camping. But the idea that like, <laughs> oh, I can't fall asleep uh, is that's inevitable, you know? And as yeah. we see in the movie, like people try as hard as they can to stay awake and sooner or later they have to sleep and that's when they're fucked. And it's just the so inspired a premise Um Man, I just I, – I could go on and on about how much I love this movie. It's interesting because, like, you know, there's a movie that just came, uh, came out this past week called Come True, um, which deals with nightmares. Have you seen that yet? I have not seen it yet. I know you, it, comes, it comes recommended. Yeah, you should definitely check it out because it's, it's – it, to me, it's one of the very first movies that I think has actually tried to do something different with the concept of nightmares in sort of the, the reality versus fantasy of, of – the conundrum of, you know, sleeping and not being able to sleep and dealing with these like, like entities and things like that. And I really think you would enjoy it because for me it is, you know, and again, this is like such a weird thing to say about a movie that's like barely a few months old, but Hmm. like it's the first movie that I can remember in a really long time that has really played around the concept of nightmares in such an innovative way, like nightmare on Elm street does. Um, which again, it's like, it's, that feels so hyperbolic. Um, and I really do like the movie. I'm still wrestling with the, the ending, but I, I, I really love 90% of that movie. Um, and I like that other 10%, um, but I'm not totally loving it. Sure. Um, but it's, it's one of those things like you, you look at like different movies over the years that tried to, to play around with the same kind of ideas and nobody's ever done it the way that it's been done here. Um, and it's, it makes me wonder because like the, the concept of a nightmare is so universal. We all have them, right? Like we all, even if we don't have nightmares, we all dream, we all sleep. And I'm just curious, like how it, like, how does a movie like this come out and set such a stage that literally nobody's been able to touch it in almost 40 years? Like that to me, that's when you know, you've done something is when you can, you can make such a mark in a way that other people will try, but nobody can come close to what you've done. 
Yeah, and and it's you know the sequels obviously try to imitate what's done here. Um, one of the things I like about the original over the sequels is that the dreams aren't codified in such a specific way that they are a lot more flexible and elastic in terms of what can happen in the dreams, the kind of imagery that we get. Hey, there's a goat. Why? I don't know, because there's a goat. Um, there's a body <laughs> bag and then at her feet are a bunch of snakes because that's a fucked up image and let's stick that in the movie. Um, and there are things that feel like nightmares that I not necessarily have had, but nightmares that I could have, you know, whereas in the sequels, they become codified because each character is given a gimmick, uh, especially when we get to like three, it starts with three and it carries through, you know, part six, each character is given a gimmick and then their nightmares are based around that gimmick. So, uh, you're the drug addict. Okay. Well, your nightmare is going to be this thing with all the Needle marks in yeah. your arms turning into eyes, or uh, I think they're tiny mouths. They're mouths. I just was about to correct myself. I apologize. <laughs> Wanting okay. to suckle at the teat of Sweet Lady H, and uh, <laughs> that's like poetry right there. Comic book guy gets his comic book nightmare, and and in the first movie that doesn't happen. We just have these weird, abstract, surrealistic images. One of my favorites isn't even a nightmare image. It's when Nancy goes to sleep and she asks Glenn to keep watch over her. She turns around at one point and says, Glenn, are you still there? And he just pops out from behind a tree. Yeah, I'm here. And at at no point do either of them realize that means he's asleep as well, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. And I love that he's just like such a bad boyfriend. <laughs> I'm like, oh, you deserve to get eaten by your bed. Um but yeah, it's it's interesting because, and then you also have to wonder too because what we sort of learn about like how the dreams work, like if if Nancy can pull somebody into her dream, can she or pull somebody out of her dream? Does she ultimately pull them in in the way that like Kristen does? In part yeah, three? right. That's that's what we start to explore in part three. Which is interesting because it is such a little minor detail of the original nightmare that I think it is kind of interesting how they sort of take that idea in explore it differently in part three yeah um because it, it that is one of those moments like i remember as a kid the the feeling of dread like the minute you see glendare because he should be somebody who represents like safety to nancy and something you know that is a good thing and then you're just like no oh no <laughs> like this isn't good um and yeah it, it's 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 interesting i think for me like i think I, I was trying to figure out like what my favorite sequence is in this movie which is like i don't know patrick pick your favorite child is is the same idea um it's Rosie, right yeah i mean i don't want to say but you know <laughs> on the off chance that one of them might be listening Rosie. Uh, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, 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 no. But like, you know what I mean? Like when you go through a movie like this, um, like it's, I, I, again, it was one of those things like, what, what do I feel like is like that standout moment? And like, sure. Like the bed, like the bed, you know, Glenn getting sucked into the bed and the blood, like shit, that's like such a moment. But I'm like, but wait, then there's Tina who like, you know, is basically being dragged across the ceiling yeah. and like splashes down into a pool of blood and like and seeing rod like reacting to that oh my god that's a moment and then there's also sort of the weird sort of trippy death in the jail scene which in some ways almost kind of made me re 
made me feel kind of akin to like Salem's Lot in a way where like somebody is trapped in a jail and, and evil shows up and there's nowhere for them to go. And then now they're going to think this kid committed suicide. Um, and then I'm like, and then do you talk about like the dream sequences where like where nobody actually dies or like Nancy's in the tub and she, you know, gets pulled down or it's, I don't know. I don't know what my favorite scene is because they all work so well. And then you also, you, we've talked about the opening with like Tina just walking around a boiler room and there's like weird goats and lambs. And, you know, again, that, that, that's the, the sound mix on that scene alone is just like so incredible. Uh, so effective. It's just, it's so tough to pick out like what that, there's no the moment in nightmare for me because it's so filled with the moments right like nancy running up the stairs and getting stuck in the in the the, goo, the gooey stairs and then freddie crashing through her glass you know the, her mirror or like just even to me you know what was the, the the thing that actually one of the things that scared me the most about nightmare which sounds so stupid it was the scene after glenn leaves her room and the feather floating in the air <laughs> and that sounds like you're like because like it's that it shouldn't be terrifying, but yet in that very small detail, Craven is telling us like this is much bigger and much more threatening than just somebody falling asleep. Right. Because now we're gonna blur those lines, right. which of course we see in the dream clinic as well. Um, it's it's kind of it's it's ridiculous how great this movie is. I love the blurring of the lines. I love that there's not like a lot of times there's no specific demarcation between when we're awake and when we're dreaming. Like eventually we figure out that we're dreaming because of context clues and weird things that don't belong in reality, but he doesn't tell you like, okay, here's this character going to sleep and now we're going to do like a doodly do doodly do doodly do. And then we're going to go into the dream. Um, and I do think that when we get into the sequels, there's a lot more of that where it's like, okay, now we're in a dream sequence. Whereas here, those lines are blurred pretty consistently. And I love that about the movie because it allows the movie to take chances and do some things that, uh, that other horror movies are not able to do. Um, the, the, the stairs that you were talking about, her going up the stairs, that was a... I've read that Bob Shea specifically directed that sequence. It was at his and insistence. I, I don't think, yeah. I don't know that he directed it, um, but I do know that he's the one who insisted that that be in the movie. I feel like that was something that they mentioned also in Never Sleep Again. Yeah. Like he, they, he talked about that sequence and then the end sequence uh, as well. That was <laughs> having that was too many Shea endings. Moment. Yes. Yes. I did so I rewatch. Like, Let's throw another ending on here. <laughs> I, I could rewatch Never Sleep Again almost as easily as I could rewatch any of these sequels. I just love Never Sleep Again. Um, I did rewatch just the section on the original Nightmare. Um, if for no other reason than because I love the story about when they spilled the blood in the upside down room and electrified all the water and then sent the yeah. room spinning on its access because the weight was thrown off. Uh, how terrifying it was to film that sequence. And then they show part of the cut scene where Johnny Depp rises back out of the bed covered in blood and falls down and you realize that that would have completely diluted how scary that moment is because again what's so terrifying about that is you don't know what's happening in that hole to produce that much blood you're like what are they doing to him that this much blood is gushing out of the bed but when he comes back out of the bed fully intact 
and falls flat, you're like, oh, okay, so nothing really happened to his body, right? He's dead. We get that he's dead. But, like, it's one of those cuts that you're so glad that they made. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I do love that scene because you can always you can kind of see the blood tilting on the yes, ceiling because oh it kind of washes to one side. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I do think that 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 was probably one of the best decisions they could have made with that movie because the uncertainty of what has happened yes. is so much scarier than any actuality that they could have shown us. Right. Like they could have had the bed gurgitate up a corpse, but it's that's not going to be as effective. It's that unknown that really just sells the horror of that moment because like if you're a parent and like your kid is nowhere to be found but there is like there was a geyser of blood coming out of their bed and that's just it that is it you have no body to bury you have no sort of confirmation that is like the worst and what i think is interesting too is that for all intents and purposes um because i talked about sort of like the dissolution of the american family that Glenn's parents are still married. They're still together. They're, you know, they still have a what we would guess is a, a normal functioning relationship. And yet their normalcy cannot protect their son. Right. So then it becomes something much bigger than sort of these, you know, I don't want to say outcasts because Nancy's not an outcast, but she's she's the product of a broken home. Tina is the product of a broken home. Rod is obviously troubled because it seems like he's been in trouble before this all happened. Um, so for, for depth deaths, um, say that five times. Fast. <laughs> um, like that to me is the all bets are off moment because not even coming from a good home that still has parents is going to save you. And certainly not miss nude America. <laughs> are Glenn's I was on TV? Are Glenn's parents, um, I mean, surely they're implicated in the death of Fred Krueger, correct? I would guess so. I would guess most of the parents. Yeah. I mean, it seems you know, like probably. everyone on the block kind of was responsible and that's why he's killing their kids. So again, we get this idea of Wes Craven taking quote unquote, normal, civilized, um, suburban people like the couple in Last House on the Left, like the family in The Hills Have Eyes, and once again reducing them to this kind of savage violence, this mob violence of them murdering Fred Krueger. Now, again, did they have a reason? Sure. So did the couple in Last House on the Left. So did the family in The Hills Have Eyes. They, their Their violence is justified if you're going to take the eye for an eye route but it's it's more implied here than it is uh, explicitly shown the way it is in those previous films. But I like that he's still working with some of these same themes. Yeah, definitely. And the thing is, that I think the movie sort of walks the line really well of the things that Wes wants to show us, but he but the uh, and then the other things that he wants to leave ambiguous, because I think there is you know there is power and ambiguity. Because again. Anything that we think is happening to Glenn is going to be far worse than anything that Wes is going to show us. Right. Um, and I think, you know, again, when you look at something like Tina's death, which is really explicit because he shows like it's not just her going up on the ceiling and being covered in blood. It's like he shows those cuts right. as they happen, which right. is still one of the most like, oh, my God, moments to me. Like I've seen some, some shit in horror movies. We all have. 
But that to me, I will never forget the that image and the sound of the 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 blades going through the skin. Again, the sound is so key in this movie. Yeah. Um, to me, that is such I, I have such a visceral response to that that like one and a half second moment of that entire scene. That to me, like, is the worst part. Because he's he's just putting it right in our faces. Um, and again, like Rod, you know, gets off kind of easy in compared in comparative terms with everybody else because he just kind of gets hung. But then it's like the neck crunch. <laughs> You're like, oh Jesus, like this kid. Um, it's it's so interesting about where where how far Wes wanted to take certain things and how other things just kind of got pulled back. And I know a lot of people will sort of go back and forth about the ending, which again, you know, in my heart of hearts, like do I, would I would have preferred the movie to just end, you know, with Freddie, you know, dissolving, you know, into his little, little sparkly particles. Um, and that was it. Yeah. Um, but also like, do I kind of love the ominous tone of like seeing little kids in the, in the background, skipping as Nancy and her friends are screaming in horror as they're being driven away by a possessed car, I guess. Sure. Why not? <laughs> so I just, I, it's like, you can't make me choose these things because I don't know because I'm, I, again, I think also because of my affection, like I can't separate my affection from these things because I will remember, like I, you know, how many kids growing up knew one, two, Freddie's coming for you. Even if you hadn't seen the movie, I think at a certain point, like around 87, 88, everybody knew that rhyme, whether or not you'd seen those movies. That's right. how effective Nightmare on Elm Street was. Well, and I and I love the detail um, that he chooses to cut to black, but allow the rhyme to keep playing over the credits. Yes. Meaning it was seeping into our reality then. Just the the execution of it matters, you know, because there are too many endings, but the execution of each of them is good. And even pulling Ronnie Blakely through the door, like it's the the effect is a mixed bag, but the speed and force with which it happens and the size of the hole that she's pulled through uh, makes it very effective. And there there are moments like that throughout the film where like, okay, maybe that effect doesn't hold up. I don't care. Um, because... I can give a crap that it looks like a blow-up doll. I don't care. Right, because it's effective. And, and what matters is that Wes Craven knows how to execute these moments. Even though the stretchy arms in the beginning um, are a little wobbly and have the potential to look a little silly. I think it totally works, right? Uh, the effect, especially be... the way that they lit it too, I think is absolutely. The, the that key makes to a huge moment. difference. Yes, absolutely. I think I read somewhere that Freddy Krueger has like seven minutes of screen time in this movie. Yeah, it's it's pretty minimal when you when you go back and actually watch it. That's amazing. Yeah, he's like the Dame Judi Dench of horror. Like he doesn't <laughs> he doesn't have to be throughout the entire movie for a movie to be great and him to be effective. Which again is is another one of the reasons why I prefer this to the sequels, which become the Freddy Show. I still like the Freddy Show. I like all the sequels, with the exception of six. I don't care for Freddy's I, Dead. And I know people love Freddy's Dead. Yeah. And I will never, I will never begrudge anybody who loves Freddy's sure. Dead. I have tried so many times with that movie to as get on board. I. Yeah, as have I. I, I actually rewatched it again in October. I was like, okay, this is it. Maybe this is the time where it's going to click for me, and it just doesn't. 
And it makes me it makes me sad because it's got a great cast and there's some interesting ideas, but then there's just so many ideas right. that it just doesn't know where to pull back. And it's a bummer too because I know it's Rachel Talalay who I really love yeah. and I really enjoy her work. Um but that movie just does not click for me. Like five has really grown on me as I've gotten older. Yes. But I think because of the themes of that movie, that's just not a movie that's going to connect to younger children. Um, maybe the way that four did, because it was sort of still like MTV infused, right, right, right. you know, four, um, where five is dealing with some really big issues that like when you're like 10 years old, those issues, you couldn't possibly begin to sort of understand them or really sort of, empathize with them like you know on a human level um so I, i've really come into to appreciating five over the like the last like 15 years more so than i did when i was a kid like when i was a kid i was just like oh okay <laughs> you know but now as i've gotten older i was like oh my god they're doing some they're doing some stuff here and again because that movie that movie works as well as it does is because elisa wilcox yeah and the rest of that cast too is actually pretty fantastic and the whole movie really is about mourning you know the whole movie is just kind of has this inherent sadness to it too. I think if we could get the uncut version widely available, I know there was a VHS that was released that was supposedly uncut, but I think if we could get the uncut version more widely available, I think that movie would be better received you, than it is now. Have you seen now. the uncut? I've never. I've seen parts of it like on YouTube. Um, okay. And possibly footage that they show like the motorcycle death. I think they show some of the uncut footage in never sleep again. Yeah, that I do remember, because that was, like, one of my favorite sequences. I think that was Christopher Biggs who did that. That is gnarly. Yeah, that is actually probably one of the best deaths um, from an effects standpoint in the entire franchise. Yeah, it's messed up. Yeah, and the way that they were able to do that, and it looks just so freaking cool, <laughs> um, you know, is 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 pretty awesome. So, Yeah. But yeah, I've I've tried so hard with six so many times, and I and if people love it, it's fine. I'm 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 happy for you. Um, but I just I, I I've tried. I've really I have tried. too, and I, I really wanted to see it at the time because I was curious about the whole three D climax. There was I remember a an hour long like retrospective documentary that was airing on MTV around the time of Six's release, hosted by Freddie. Um, and it had interviews with a bunch of old cast members and it had Rachel Talalay talking about like, Hey, I'm the person who gets to kill Freddie. This is so exciting. I recorded it off MTV. I used to watch it all the time. Um, so there was a lot around six that had me very excited for it. But when I did finally see the movie and every time since it's always been a disappointment for me, but as you said, for some people, it's like their favorite entry in the franchise. So more power to you. Yeah, I think for a lot of people, too, that are just, like, you know, a few years younger than us, that might have been, like, their first experience with Nightmare. Sure. So I get it. You know, I get it. And, again, I'm somebody who loves Howling, too, so I'm in no position to judge <laughs> anybody for the movies that they love. Um, you know, so I get it. Um, but, yeah, I've I've tried really a lot with that one, and I just I can't do it. It's it's like it's like Friday 8 for me. <laughs> that's another one that i keep trying and i, I really do. never even seven i keep trying and i i can't get any of these movies to click with me yeah eight for me is just so dull yeah. friday eight oh my goodness i've 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 really i've really i mean like and the fact that it's just like beyond the fact that it's dull it's just like the effects in that movie are so sleepy and there is zero continuity when it comes to jason like there's like 
10 different little boys who play him throughout that movie. <laughs> One of them looks like he's from the, from the grudge. I just, <laughs> Oh, I've tried so hard. So it's usually like, cause we, we have one through eight, like on our voodoo. So like when we, cause we'll, we, we, you know, and actually one is really grown on us over the last few years too. Sure. If you just separate it from the rest of the series. Um, so we'll watch one through seven quite a bit. And then we always get to eight and we're like, well, we could go back to one. <laughs> That's literally a conversation we have all the time. We're like, or we could go back to one. <laughs> So that's just, yeah, that's basically where, where we're at with those. But yeah, it's it's interesting to me because like I unabashedly love the Nightmare series and I, it's something that means a lot to me. It's the reason I fell in love with Wes's movies. It's the reason that pretty much when I could start having control over the movies that I got to go see, anytime I could go see a Wes Craven movie in a theater, I was there like opening weekend um, you know, I, I think my first one, like outside of the nightmare, I believe I snuck into people on the stairs. No, that was still my mom was going through a weird phase. Um, but, uh, vampire in Brooklyn, I remember was like the first one where I was like, okay. I'm gonna see this. and I know, I know, I know. Um, I actually made out with a cute boy during that movie too. Well, congratulations. Um, yeah, it was weird because it was like over Christmas break and he was like, what are you doing for prom? And I was like, it's January. Dude. <laughs> um, and then it got weird. Um, but I remember like I moved one of my finals my freshman year of college so I could get home sooner to see Scream. And then it was like Scream 2 and Scream 3. I had like a girlfriend from college who like we we actually made like dates and like tried to figure out like how, like how to get her home so we could see those together. I even took my mom to music of the heart. Nice. I was like, okay. I was like, look, we can go see a Wes Craven movie together. <laughs> they kind of freak out about. Cause I took her to scream and that did not go so well. Oh, I, I misjudged that uh, <laughs> big time. I was like, look, it's like, we're going to go see like a nightmare. on she, but it's scream. And I thought she was going to love it. And then I was like, Oh wait, I'm a teenage girl. You're seeing this teenage girl who's having sex with her boyfriend. Right. And then everyone's getting murdered and he murdered her mom. And so <laughs> like me and my ex like took my mom to see this. And she's probably like, why would you think I would? Like this? <laughs> so, but I will give her credit because I remember one year I was visiting home and Scream Four was actually on cable, and I just walked in the door and she's like, "Oh, Scream Four just started. I left it on because I know you like those movies." And I was like, "Oh, nice, okay, interesting." Um, but I mean, I even saw Cursed and Red Eye in in theaters. Me too. Yep. So you know, uh, the only one I didn't get a chance to see was My Soul to Take. See in theaters or see ever? I actually haven't seen it yet. Okay. I've seen it more than once, weirdly enough, but I did not see it in theaters. Okay. Yeah. I, I didn't see it in theaters and I actually haven't watched it yet. So that's my only other like West that I haven't experienced yet. It'll be interesting when we get there. Uh, I'm excited. <laughs> so, I know. I've already, I've already gone through and watched uh, Hills of Eyes part two. So Which I'm is already our next, ready. For that's our next show, right? Oh, it is. It yeah. is. Yeah, because I don't think there's a TV movie in between. I'm trying to make sure. Really, Chiller cool. comes after. Uh yes. Chiller is '85, I believe. So in '84, he had this. Hills Have Eyes two. And Invitation to Hell, I think. Well, actually, uh, according to I, and again, I don't really know exactly how their movie was released, but this says '85 uh, for Hills Have Eyes two. Oh, okay. August of eighty five. Okay. So Chiller might be So Chiller in there, might which... be next. I don't know which one is next, but we'll figure it yeah. out. 
Well, it was one of those I saw it streaming and I was like, you know, you never know what's going to be on streaming and taking off streaming. Right. So, you know, do I just Oh yeah. Do I just pull the trigger? Yeah, actually, yeah, Chiller comes first. Okay. Chiller is May 85. All right. So Chiller and then Hills Have Eyes Part 2. Yes. Chiller I've never seen, so that'll be interesting. I watched that for the first time a couple of years ago because it was on, I think, Voodoo or Tubi or something like that. And okay. I was like, okay. So that one I did catch up with a few years ago. But it's, that'll be my second watch, second viewing of okay. it. So. But we teased yeah. it at the beginning. We should probably tell the story about how Freddy Krueger is responsible for our friendship. And then we should wrap up. <laughs> Yes. So I remember because my best friend growing up was a year older than me. And I remember, um, so it was, it would have been, I was in fifth grade. You guys were in sixth grade. And I remember she came home and she was like, oh, I made friends with this guy. And all he, ta- she's like, and he kept talking about a nightmare on Elm Street or something to that effect. <laughs> and she, I, I always drove her nuts with my love of horror. Like a lot of the times I think like she just watched things because I wanted to watch them. Um, which is so funny because I always, growing up, I always saw her as more of the dominant person in our friendship. But I guess maybe I was when it came to movies, um, especially for the amount of times I made her watch like Clue and Fright Night and Terror in the Isles. So maybe I was a movie hog growing up and I'm just coming to terms with it. But, you know, we watched a lot. of We watched Nightmare 1 and 2 like a lot when we were kids and 3. And so I remember her saying like, oh, you should totally talk to him because like, I just, nobody else really liked horror movies that like, whereas like in our group of friends, you know, where we, we grew up in our, in the trailer park we lived in. And so she was like, oh, you should totally talk to him. And I was like, okay. And I just remember like, I either called your house. Cause I was, I remember talking to her, talking to you at her house. Um, so I remember if like she called you and then I got on the phone or whatever, but like, we just started like talking about Nightmare on Elm Street and different horror movies and things like that. And I remember, I remember we had a conversation because I mentioned my Freddy Krueger poster, and you're like, "Oh, that's cool." <laughs> and I remember I was like, "Oh, I actually made a friend who likes horror." Like now, it's not so weird because we have social media, we right. have conventions. Right. But you know, back in the late '80s, early '90s, like we didn't have that kind of stuff. And so I remember I was really excited because I was uh, babysitting a lot around that time because I started babysitting like at age ten, and I had money saved up. <laughs> and I remember it was like the first year I could like buy Christmas presents for my friends. And I remember we used to go to venture a lot. Got in this venture. <laughs> um, did you guys shop at venture a lot? When of you were course. Kids? Yeah. Oh my God. So good. Um, and I remember that was where I got my Freddy Krueger poster for myself. And I was like, okay, cool. And so I was like, all right. So I, I gotten Jenna's gift. I got another gift for my, my friend Mandy and I was like, okay. I was like, I have money left over. I was like, I'm going to get Patrick a Freddy Krueger poster because how cool is that? And so I remember because like my mom and her boyfriend at the time were doing their Christmas shopping separately. And I was like at the poster thing. And so there's the Freddy Krueger poster. And I was like, sweet. And I was like, $4.99. All right. I've got enough money. I'm going to do this. And so like I got all my stuff together uh, to check out. And I checked out by myself because I'm like such a grown up. <laughs> um and I remember I wrapped the poster and I gave it to Jenna to give to you at school because we hadn't even met in person yet, which is crazy. Correct. And so like we were just like phone friends and and I just remember her like coming home and she didn't really say much. And I was just like, oh, did you get that? She's like, yeah. And I was like, oh, did he like it? And she, and she was like, oh, I don't know. And I hadn't I opened like, it. I didn't open it till I got home. 
Yeah, so she's like, oh, I don't know, and that was sort of the end of it, but I'll let you take it from here, because... (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if I remember the exact details. I got home, and I opened it, and it was a poster of a blonde woman in a white one-piece swimsuit sitting on a beach, and I thought, that's an odd gift (laughs) from a girl that I've been talking to, but okay, Uh, she wanted to get me something, and that's very nice. (laughs) And then we talked probably that night and you're like, did you get the poster? Yeah. Did you like it? Yeah. Thank you. You know, you thinking that you got me a Freddy poster and I'm not saying like, at some point you put it together that like, maybe something was off. Yeah. Cause I, I was like, wait, he's not like excited. Right. And he's acting kind of weird. <laughs> and I was like, it's really cool though. Right. And you're like, Yeah. And I, it's like, I'm so curious, like, did your, did your parents see you open this poster? Was this like something you did? Like, cause I, I can't imagine like a boy who's like 12 or whatever, like getting a poster like that. Like your parents would be like, what now? I don't, I don't think they watched me open it, but it definitely okay. was up in my room for like the next five or six years. <laughs> like, <laughs> That's I put... amazing. <laughs> See, I didn't even know that you kept it up. That's hilarious. Well, of course I did. It was my <laughs> gift from my horror BFF. Did you, did you like, tape a, tape Freddie's face onto the girl of the bikini at all? It would or have just... created a very strange relationship between me and those movies, and I wasn't <laughs> were, ready for that. You weren't ready for that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Not in your teenage years. Is that part three where Freddie has boobs? What's the... Yeah, it's okay. part three. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't ready for that. No, I don't think any of us were. Um, so anyway, yeah, we figured it, out that like, because it was that thing where you used to flip through the rack and then it would be like, go to slot B2 and you would pull the poster out of slot B2 and the wrong poster was in slot B2 or whatever slot it was, the wrong poster was there and you had no way of knowing because it's just rolled I mean, up. I, you guess have I, no way of... I guess I should have just looked at the label that probably would have told me, but I don't even think it was like anything specifically written on the label that would have like keyed me up to realizing that it was wrong. So I really should have realized because like it had like a different color palette and everything. Um, <laughs> Cause I think I remember going back to venture like a couple weeks later and then seeing the poster that I had gotten you. And I was like, yeah. Oh, okay. And God bless those posters back then because, uh, Boy, they uh, they did not leave a lot to the imagination. <laughs> <laughs> it was a tasteful one piece. Okay, well, that's good, at least. At least it wasn't one of those where, like, if the wind blows a certain way, like, all your bits and pieces are showing. <laughs> so. I've tried to remember the model's name. I feel like it was written somewhere on the poster, and I've tried to remember her name because I so badly wish I could, like, do a Google image search and find that poster just so we could, like, put it up for people to see. Um but I don't feel like combing through a Google image search of tens of thousands of blonde and white one piece. So I'm not going to do it. Maybe it was like my way of like turning you into Joey who like had like those posters on his wall in three and four. Uh, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't know, but yeah, I just remember I was like so proud of myself. I was like, (laughs) I saved up all my money to give my friends gifts for Christmas. And then I was like, I totally screwed the pooch on that one. But it's such a funny story. And here we are. When did you eventually, like, did you just like toss it eventually? Like when you got to like out of high school? I think so. Yeah. When I, uh, I don't remember at what point I took it down, but probably when I got out of high school. Yeah. Then you realize, like, oh, if girls, like, come over and they see that poster, that's probably, <laughs> probably. not going to be good. No there. girls were ever coming over. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
but yeah, I just thought that was, I, it's one of those where I'm like, I still laugh about that. And I believe me, I'm very, very adamant about checking things these days when it comes to gift giving. <laughs> I just wish I could remember the exact conversation up to the point that we figured out that it was the wrong poster because how weird it must have been when you were like, did you like it? Yeah. And I'm just like, yeah, trying to be cool, but so confused <laughs> about why you gave me that poster. It's like a sitcom thing. It it's really like, is. It's a wacky it's misunderstanding like a, worthy of yeah. Three's company. It really is. You know, it's, it's, it's that's what sitcom is like. 90% of sitcom hilarity uh, came from like miscommunication and, and misunderstanding. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, but yeah, that was uh, that was a time for sure. <laughs> it was. Uh, anything else about a night on Elm Street you want to mention before we go? Uh, no, because we're going to get to talk more about it in a few episodes when we finally get to New Nightmare. So I will save all that stuff for then. All right, cool. Well, thank you guys very much for listening. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Craven Craven Pod. And stay tuned next month for Chiller, a first-time watch for me. This is very cool. Exciting. I'm excited. Me too. Thank you, Heather. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you, everybody, for listening. See you next month. Bye.